love spawning in with my camera out of focus. There we go. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens Podcast. I'm, as always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin. I hope everybody is doing well out there mentally, physically, and emotionally. I'm sending some extra condolences to all of my Grizzlies fans out there. Not because, you know, anything bad happened to y'all or anything serious happened to y'all, I should say. But um, mainly because... Dude, it is not looking good for y'all over there in Memphis. The Warriors took a 3-1 lead on Monday night despite the fact that they didn't play particularly well. I'm going to get into that in a minute. And we're just going to begin as we have been doing the last couple of weeks. We're just going to start up with some all-around playoff talk. and Kind of just give you my thoughts on everything that's been going on i'm actually going to go ahead and pull up you know all of like the series summaries and all of that shit um off off the top of my head i think that the most entertaining series for me has been phoenix and dallas i don't know if that's just because i'm a simp for luca and i'm a simp for spencer dinwiddie but i just think that that series as a whole has had quite um how do I get to the fucking Bro, where I wish that basketball reference just had like a playoff tab. I wish I wish they just had like a playoff tab at the beginning at the at the top of their website. They have it like tucked way down below. But whatever, I'm not I'm not a fucking I'm not a tech guy, I'm not a UI guy or whatever. But Memphis and Dallas has Memphis and Dallas. Oh god, I'm already in shambles. This is awesome. Phoenix and Dallas, I think, has had a perfect balance of really everything. Right up there with Milwaukee and Boston as well. I've had a lot of fun watching the Bucks and Celtics go uh, go at it. But Phoenix, Dallas. Am I surprised that Dallas has fought back to tie this series at 2-2? Not particularly. Going into the second round, going into the conference semifinals, I felt that there was really no team that was going to get through to the conference finals without a little bit of adversity. Um, the one team that I did think was going to, you know, have the easiest time was Golden State just because on paper, in terms of talent and in terms of everything that the Warriors are, I felt that they were just better equipped for the playoffs than Memphis was. I, f I still feel that they are the better team and they very clearly are the superior team. But other than that, Miami. Also, I said that Philadelphia was going to have a hard time getting out, uh, but that was contingent on the health of Joel Embiid, of course, who's come back and who has looked like Joel Embiid over the last couple of games. So very excited to see him back and to see him healthy. But Phoenix and Dallas. Now, realistically, should Phoenix be 2-2 with the Mavericks? No, they should not. And it's, I don't want to say it all falls on Chris Paul, but the last two games, in Game 3, Chris Paul had more turnovers than points, if I remember correctly. Uh, finished with seven turnovers. No, that was in the first half. I apologize. He had more turnovers than points in the first half. He finished the game with seven turnovers overall. And then in Game 4, fouling out early, early in the fourth quarter. And it they, Phoenix was just in shambles. From that point on, of course, it didn't help that Dallas got, oh, dude, they got, I can't even think of a superlative to describe how hot they were in the fourth quarter of that game, or just for just that game 
as a whole. You have DFS going 8 of 12 from 3. I mean, they shot 20 of 44 from behind the three-point line. And this is with Luka Doncic shooting 1 of 10. All of the Mavericks, not named Luka, were 19 of 34 from the three-point line. That is an absolutely preposterous percentage. That's greater than 50%. That's got to be close to 60%, if my math serves me correctly. It was just a spectacular performance from Dallas, from everybody, and even Luka. I know Luka didn't shoot particularly well. I'm looking at the box score right now. 9 of 25, 1 of 10 from 3, still managed to finish with 26 points and 11 assists. Same thing with Jalen Brunson. Phoenix's defense has done a pretty respectable job keeping Luka, or maybe not Luka, but definitely Jalen Brunson. Definitely keep keeping Jalen Brunson in check after he popped off on Utah. I mean, through four games, Brunson did 17 points, shooting below 40%. From the field, like they've really stifled Luca. Uh, not Luca. I keep saying Luca. They've really forced all of the Mavericks to come together and pick up the production collectively because there hasn't been anyone who stepped up as that clear number two. There have been flashes, obviously, of Jalen Brunson putting it together, but collectively for the series, I mean, these numbers on this. On these shooting splits, I mean, 39% from the field, 25% from three. These are not Jalen Brunson numbers. And then Spencer Dinwiddie as well. I think I talked about this last week, but they got this guy from Washington who came over, shot almost 50% from the field and 40% from three, was giving you double-digit points, I think like close to 15 or 16. It was definitely upwards of 15, maybe even closer to 20. I can't remember off the top of my head. But this guy gets to the playoffs and all of a sudden can't play. I mean, granted, he is shooting significantly better from 3-6-15 so far, but Dallas is going to need Luka. Uh, Why do I keep saying Luka? That's the third time. Dallas is going to need Brunson and Spencer Dinwiddie to play significantly more efficiently than they are right now because one thing I know about Phoenix is that these flukes, these fluky performances by Chris Paul, are not going to persist. Chris Paul is not going to have another game where he's uncharacteristically lazy with the ball. I mean, in Game 3, watching it back, Chris Paul, one of the smartest, one of the brightest, one of the most just reliable ball handlers in NBA history, committing unforced errors is just something that does not happen. It doesn't happen. And, um... Again, actually, I want to apologize. When I said that Chris Paul had more turnovers than points in the first half of Game 3, that might have been correct, although he finished Game 4 with more personal fouls than points. I mean, 23 minutes, you pick up six fouls in 23 minutes. One of those was those very odd, another one of those odd decisions where Chris Paul just... He did that thing that all guards do where they find someone who's trailing them in transition or in semi-transition, and he just stops in front of them. He did that to Jalen Brunson and got banged for an offensive foul because, of course, as we all know, you're not allowed to do that anymore. And that was a a careless foul. That's up there with your superstar taking a take foul in the first quarter. Like, I remember Kyrie Irving doing against the Boston Celtics in the first round, just picking up an unnecessary personal 
when your team can't really afford it. Like Phoenix knew they they had to have known that Dallas, despite being the fourth seed, is one of the stronger teams in the field. I mean, they have an electrifying offense. Luca is just absolutely extraordinary, and their defense has been much improved over years past. And now they actually have complementary scoring options. They can space the floor, the floor with Maxi Kleba, Davis Bertans, Dorian Finney-Smith. Of course, if he's going to continue playing like this, like the Suns are going to have their hands full. But I'm looking at Phoenix, and there are very, very few bad things you can say about Devin Booker. And he's really been the... He has been the force that has stabilized Phoenix all throughout this series. When the offense is cooking, you know you can pass the ball to Booker to keep that run going. When the offense is stagnant, like how it was in Game 4 and parts of Game 3, you know, Chris Paul is just playing like shit or not playing at all, you can give the ball to Devin Booker and he'll put it in the basket for you. He's just such a crafty scorer. He's a legitimate three-level scoring threat, can play with the ball in his hands, can play without the ball in his hands. After this season, and after the last couple of seasons overall, it's hard to not look at Devin Booker as the next great all-around scorer. Like, he really has that potential. He has Kobe Bryant-like potential. He has Tracy McGrady-like potential. I know we don't really talk about Kawhi Leonard when it comes to great scorers just because he doesn't really... His play isn't so eye-catching. It's very boring. I mean, Kawhi Leonard is a very boring basketball player to watch. That's just his whole brand at this point. But Devin Booker is... He's in that category. Like, there is nothing this kid cannot do on offense. There's nowhere he can't score from on offense either. And that really saves Phoenix from imploding. He's averaging almost 27 points on 46% shooting. Is 13 of 25 from three and 25 of 28 at the line he is doing his part the next closest scorer is DeAndre Ayton and Chris Paul both of whom are at 16 points per game I mean Phoenix has definitely not been bad I'm not saying they've been bad but outside of Devin Booker no one is jumping off the stat sheet I'm talking about Devin Booker and Luka Doncic basically having the same problem Because they are. You have these two hyper-talented guys not getting the same level of production that they're used to getting from their team in the regular season. And effectively, that's going to dictate who advances throughout this series. I do know, however, that if Dallas is ready to pull off an upset or if they are expecting to pull off an upset, they cannot do it without stealing one of these next two games that Phoenix is playing at home. No, neither team has stolen home court advantage so far. And the old adage goes is that it isn't a series until a team wins on the road. So although it's 2-2, both teams have won both of their games at home. Dallas clearly has more momentum going back to Phoenix. But then again, if it continues at this rate and only the home teams are advancing, Dallas is shit out of luck. So I don't know if they're going to be able to go in and steal a game seven. Maybe game five is much more easily attainable for them. But ultimately, their success lies in their supporting cast, as almost every other, as almost every other championship contender does. Except, more specifically, they need that second guy to step up and 
establish himself as that second guy, whether it be Jalen Brunson or whether it be Spencer Dinwiddie. But if Dallas's offense continues to chug along like this, they're they're going to be tough to dismantle, especially if they shoot at that clip going forward. It will be almost impossible for Phoenix to adjust to that. Like there really is no team that can withstand that constant barrage from three, especially if they're not putting that same effort forward. But I mean, we've seen Phoenix come alive late in games. They put up a hundred. They put up two hundred and fifty points combined in games one and two after falling or before falling to 94 and 101. So these two extremes is more of an indictment on Phoenix's ability to, you know, settle the offense and control the offense than it is of Dallas's stifling defense. And although Dallas's defense is, it's, you know, extraordinary, it's spectacular, a lot is also to be said about how much difficulty the Suns have without Chris Paul. I mean, that's abundantly clear. The only Sun who has not struggled without Chris Paul has been Devin Booker because he's able to get his own shot. He's able to create for his teammates, but he is still not the half-court stabilizer that Chris Paul is. So I really don't know what to expect from these next three games going forward. I know that I'm I'm expecting some some fun 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 basketball um because the games have been close i mean they've been decided by what is that nine they've been decided by 19 points combined i mean these were winnable games for phoenix and you can clearly point to the instances that caused them to lose this game so we're gonna move on from that um who's next i think milwaukee and boston that is such that is such a bizarre series this is this series is wacky because both of these teams are playing like shit neither Milwaukee nor Boston is playing at a level or playing close to the level at least offensively that we were used to seeing in the regular season and of course some of this is well I want I say some of it almost all of it is attributed to the fact that these are arguably the two best defenses in the NBA. You got Boston being the top-rated defense throughout the regular season. You have Milwaukee, who's currently the top-rated defense throughout the postseason. And they've looked every bit of those. They've looked every bit as good on the court as they are on paper. The only outlier is the fact that Giannis is managing to average 32 points so far. He is accounting for nearly a third of Milwaukee's scoring total. In fact, almost exactly a third of Milwaukee's scoring total. They're at 99.5 for the team. He's got 32 of them. But it's a very inefficient 32, especially compared to the type of player that Giannis is and how easily he scored throughout the regular season. This dude shot 56% from the floor throughout the regular season. That's down to four, about 44% in this series against Boston. And 44% on high volume is a respectable mark for a guard, a smaller player. Like, think of guys like Kobe Bryant. I mean, 44, 45% for a high volume perimeter scorer is respectable. I mean, of course, you have the outliers like Michael Jordan who shoot close to 50%, but most guys who are taking a lot of shots as a guard or as a wing 
are not getting the highest percentage looks because they take a lot of threes, they take a lot of long twos, they're not getting to the rim. Giannis, being seven feet tall, the freak athlete that he is, of course, I there's really no need for me to describe what Giannis is because we all know what he is. For him to be shooting 44% is an anomaly. And it ultimately comes down to the defense that Al Horford has been playing on him. I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but I think maybe it was like Al Horford holding Giannis to, I think, like 35% from the floor, which is absolutely preposterous. It's absolutely preposterous. Now, some of that is also the byproduct of Boston's incredible help defense because Giannis is, I don't think he's getting to the rim at the same rate. He's certainly not converting at the same rate at the rim that we're used to, but he's settling for, you know, a decent amount of mid-range jumpers. He's taking, he's taken 16 threes so far, which isn't that many, but he's taking those open threes because Al Horford is giving them to him and he's only made two so far. And if you're going to shoot that poorly, Al Horford is going to continue to give you five, six, seven feet of room because he's not going to allow you to beat him off the dribble. And while Al Horford is a spectacular defender in terms of just his intangibles, uh, his quickness, his agility, what also makes him such an effective defender against Giannis is his size and how mobile he is at his size. This dude is 6'10" and is able to keep himself in front of Giannis. He's not getting overpowered in the post. He's not really getting beat too badly off the dribble. And that is the blueprint, and I put blueprint in co- in quotes, to stopping Giannis because although there's really no way to, to stop him entirely, you can make his job very, very difficult. And we've seen guys who have the Al Horford build really give Giannis fits, whether it's Horford, whether it's Julius Randle. I think statistically Julius Randle fared very well against Giannis, not because he's he's a spectacular defender, but because he's a big body who's physical and agile. He's got that perfect blend. Julius Randle has this. Um, Al Horford has this. Bam Adebayo has this. That physicality combined with that agility is huge in slowing down Giannis, who himself is very physical and very agile. And in the playoffs, when the whistles do become scarcer and scarcer, although it didn't really look like that in Game 4, it's easier to play more physically, especially if you're a physical player playing into your strengths. Um, But really, outside of Giannis, the Celtics are content to let Giannis get all of his buckets and effectively close off everybody else. And without Chris Middleton, they can afford to do that. You can afford to help more aggressively on Giannis when really the only guy that you have to worry about, the other serious scoring threat, is Drew Holiday. And of course, Drew Holiday is a spectacular player in his own right. But him over, or him instead of Chris Middleton, is not optimal for... Milwaukee's offense. That's no disrespect to Drew Holiday. I just feel in this setting, Drew Holiday is much more suited to be a facilitator. That's not to say he can't go out and get buckets. I'm not trying to disrespect Drew Holiday as a scorer, but if I'm a coach, I would much rather game plan for Giannis and Drew than Giannis and Chris. And I seeing the three of them is something that I would not want to see. But 
even the supporting cast for Milwaukee has kind of been pretty mid. The team overall has been very mid. The only guy who sticks out off the bench is Pat Connaughton. And this is, of course, in the in um speaking in terms of three-point shooting because that's what Milwaukee's bench has to give them. They have to space the floor. I'm not concerned about defense because we know that Milwaukee doesn't struggle on that end of the floor. But the shooters have to remain hot. Their, their highest volume guys, Drew Holiday, is shooting below 30% from three, which I think is like really far below his career average. Drew Holiday is a 36% shooter for his career. 40% is coming to Milwaukee. I didn't know he was that efficient. So Drew Holiday, way below baseline. Pat Connaughton is shooting 45% from three. So he's been by far their most reliable candidate. Grayson Allen, outside of what was it, game one or game two? I think it was uh, game one when he buried like five of seven threes or something like that. Well, okay, game one, Grayson Allen was three to six. What was he in game? Maybe I'm thinking of game three. No, definitely think about game one. Outside of that game, Grayson Allen has been forgettable. Hasn't brought anything to the table. Shooting below 30% from three. Then you have Wesley Matthews, who's 5 of 13. And one very fascinating development is Brooke Lopez being taken off of the three-point line entirely. So far in this series, Brooke Lopez, who's made one of the most remarkable transformations in NBA history going from a low post score to a legitimate stretch five he's attempted just three threes in this series he hasn't hit any but he's been hanging out around the basket there were a bunch of times late in game four where Giannis and Drew were just feeding Brooke around the basket whether it be on alley-oops whether it be on dump passes so that might be his new role going forward um, it remains to be seen, but this team, the the game plan for Boston around Milwaukee, if Brooks starts hitting threes, is drastically different. And then there really hasn't been anyone else seeing significant minutes. So, really, Boston is letting these guys get their looks. They're letting the supporting cast get their looks because as of now, it just it hasn't been falling. But for Boston, their offense has been equally as bad however they've kept alive by making a sizable portion of their threes they're at 37 percent compared to milwaukee's 29 the fact that this series is tied with both teams playing this anemically and with milwaukee's added putridness from the three-point line i think it really speaks to how dominant Giannis is in every aspect of the game it really is like peak lebron levels of dominance like he is seriously looking like the next greatest of all time because statistically Boston has been the better team their defense has been better in terms of efficiency and um oh wait I'm sorry their defense has been better in terms of efficiency and points they're outscoring Milwaukee by about four points or so yeah, give or take. Yeah, about four and a half points, something like that. They've been shooting better from three. Like, those are the two biggest things that decide basketball games in the modern NBA. How good your defense is and how lights out your shooters are. And Boston has been better. 
in both of those regards. And of course, you know, there was that controversial game three ending, but really the this series can go either way. I mean, I'm looking at Boston, who is getting like negative production from Jason Tatum, shooting 30% overall. Of course, that is tanked by the fact that he shot four of 19 in game three. And I think just like how Giannis's impact is so noticeable, the collective excellence of Boston finishing two points behind Milwaukee in that game, even with the controversial ending and even with Jason Tatum shooting that badly, it is they're they're simply reaching another level. And if Tatum figures it out before Milwaukee's bench figures it out for themselves, it can get real ugly. Real, real, real ugly. But we just got to give a, a shitload of credit to not only Jalen Brown, of course, but Al Horford. Al Horford is like 300 years old in athlete years. This dude is 35, will be 36 this June, has been playing professional basketball since 2008, and is right now having arguably the best postseason of his career in terms of statistical production, I might add. So at the time of this recording, this playoff run for Al Horford is his second best in terms of scoring, his third best in terms of rebounding, and his third best in terms of efficiency. And that's not even taking into account his production on defense. I mean, I know that defensive metrics really are not the best, um, really aren't the most accurate ways to gauge players in the NBA, but this is his best playoffs in terms of defensive box plus minus. And this is also his best playoffs in terms of win shares per 48 minutes, which basketball reference defines as an estimate of the number of wins contributed by a player per 48 minutes. It's effectively boiling down a player's production on a one game basis and making it relative to the league average, which is 100. Like this is an absolutely incredible run from Al Horford. And it's only making the production of Jalen Brown, or it's only making Jalen Brown's life easier. I mean, Marcus Smart is still doing Marcus Smart things, despite the fact that this guy is also nowhere to be seen on offense. Although he's only shooting a few percentage points worse than Jason Tatum, which is not something I had on my NBA bingo card. But we also can't forget that Marcus Smart is literally a scorer last. This guy's first this guy's first thing is to play defense, and then after that, it's to facilitate. And he's done a great job of just help keeping Boston's offense moving along. Um, Grant Williams is also having another strong performance. Like all of these guys that are playing well, whether it's Grant Williams, whether it's Al Horford, whether it's Derek White, they're all doing so on in those two areas that are so crucial to success, defense and three-point shooting. I know Grant Williams got into foul trouble um, in game four, I'm pretty sure. I don't remember if it persisted for the whole game. I mean, he had four fouls, but I think he picked up... Oh, he picked up most of them in... Um in the third quarter and he really didn't play the fourth quarter at all which is actually pretty pretty fascinating but even in the fourth quarter of game four Jason Tatum found his stroke shoot shot five of six in that period finished with 12 points just barely behind Al Horford's 16 and that really 
decided the game because Milwaukee was getting no production from all of the guys that they should have been. Giannis was 3 of 7. Giannis and Drew Holiday combined to shoot 3 of 12 in the fourth quarter and got 7 points between them. The highest scorer was Blake Griffin. Blake Griffin. What the fuck am I talking about? Was Brooke Lopez. And it was an absolute onslaught by Boston's offense in that quarter. And they really bounced back. They looked like they were getting rooked in the third quarter, which of course I was I was very happy to see. But ultimately it uh they reversed fortunes quite quite aggressively, quite quickly and quite aggressively as well. Now the last series that I want to talk about before, uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to play a video for you guys in a little bit. Uh, the last series that I want to jump on is Miami and Philadelphia. Now, before we get into this, I want to ask Eric Spolstra, I want to look into the camera, and I want to ask Eric Spolstra, what the fuck are you doing not playing Duncan Robinson? I don't understand. I just, I don't understand. In game three, Miami mustered 79 points. In game four, 108. Now, let's go through these box scores. Jimmy Butler, 1 of 5 from 3. Max Struess, 3 of 11 from 3. Tyler Hero, 2 of 7 from 3. As a team, you shot 30, 30, 23%. 23% as a team from the three-point line. Let's go to game four because certainly you can't replicate this performance. There's no fucking shot. And then, what happens? Jimmy Butler, 2 of 6 from 3. Kyle Lowry, 0 of 6 from 3. Max Struess, 2 of 4. P.J. Tucker, 1 of 4. Tyler Hero, Victor Oladipo, both 1 of 5. And then Game Vincent rounded it out, going a very solid 0 of 4 from 3-point line. So, they finished Game game 3 at 23% shooting, and then Game 4 at 20% shooting. And all while this is happening, you have Duncan Robinson wasting away on your bench. You have quite arguably the best perimeter shooter in the NBA right now on your bench, not participating. A guy who over the last three years has made, how many threes has this guy made? This guy has made 752 threes at a rate of 41%, and he is getting no run. Not even in this series, but in the playoffs. He's played 67 minutes in six games. 67 minutes in six games. And small sample size alert, is shooting 53% from three. For his career, remember when Miami went to the NBA Finals? In 2020, he was instrumental in that. And how do I know this? Well, we can just go to the stats. In about 29 minutes a game in 2020, Duncan Robinson attempted 7.5 threes a game, 7.4 threes per game, and shot 40% from the field. Now, keep in mind, while all of this is happening, Jimmy Butler, in these last two games, has scored... 73 points. He scored 73 points in two games. Had 33 in game three and 40 in game four. You are wasting 
these performances from Jimmy Butler because Duncan Robinson cannot make his way to the scorer's table because of Eric Spolstra for some reason. I don't know if Eric Spolstra just all of a sudden doesn't like Duncan Robinson. I don't know if he made, I don't know if Duncan Robinson was making fun of Eric Spolstra or, you know, has dirt on his family or something, but there's no, there's no reason that this should be happening. There's no reason that Miami should be tied 2-2 with the Philadelphia 76ers against a Sixers team where Joel Embiid has not looked like Joel Embiid, where James Harden is no longer the James Harden of old. I mean, why? Why is Duncan Robinson not getting any run? And I'm not using this to try to downplay the Sixers. I think that Tyrese Maxey has been spectacular. Tobias, Tyrese Maxey and Tobias Harris have done a fantastic job of helping mitigate the production lost from Joel Embiid. Because although Joel Embiid is shooting 48% from the field, averaging 21 points, this he is certainly not the player that he was throughout the regular season. He's certainly not the player he was before all of these injuries, the concussion, the orbital fracture, the torn ligament in his thumb. But he's still giving you production that 95% of players cannot achieve. And then James Harden, although he's not the same James Harden he once was, he's still good for 20 points. I mean, that's something. He's good for 20. He's good for 20 and 7. He's a great option to, you know, help keep the offense moving sometimes. And Miami is just squandering these opportunities. Like they could they could have swept Philly. I I really think that they could have swept the Philadelphia 76. Maybe not swept because even if Duncan Robinson plays in game 3, I don't think that they're making that much noise because also Jimmy Butler and Tyler Hero were the only guys to score in double figures. So maybe they're not winning game three, but they should be up three games to one because in game four, JB gave you 40. You got 21 from Bam. That was probably his best game. That was probably, I think it was his highest scoring game of the series. I don't remember. Oh, he had 23 in game one or in game two, pardon me. And he had, what did he have? Okay. So he's, Game four was a continuation of what we saw in games one and two. Bam was playing at his baseline. And to not get Duncan Robinson on the floor when you already have the hard the hardest time creating space for Jimmy Butler, he still got 40. Imagine if the floor was that much more open for him. Imagine how much more efficiently the offense could run if you just gave... Duncan Robinson a few minutes of playtime. And I guarantee he would probably miss his first three, but then quickly get back into the flow and drop in two, three, four, maybe even five in very limited minutes. It's just, it's silly. It's silly decision-making by Eric Spolstra. Eric Spolstra, one of the greatest coaches of his generation is making boneheaded mistakes and I don't know why. I can't put my finger on it. It doesn't make any sense to me and that is effectively all of the thoughts that I'm that I've taken away from Philly and Miami. Now with that, we have the last series to talk about. It's Golden State and Memphis. Very very wacky series going on. 
Yeah, Dylan Brooks gets suspended for effectively, as J.J. Reddick said, trying to decapitate Gary Payton Jr. Gary Payton Jr., of course, is will be out for the next couple of weeks with a fractured elbow. And then we had that whole kerfluffle with Jordan Poole and John Morant, where Jordan Poole appeared to have uh, twisted Jaws knee, which caused him to miss game four. Ultimately, though, nothing's come of it. And even still, although Golden State barely pulled out a victory in game four, they did so with bad shooting from Clay and Steph. And they weathered the storm. They weathered the storm miraculously, even though before then they have pretty clearly been the better of the two teams. I don't think anyone is going to debate that. I mean, they blasted Memphis by 30 in game three. Um, yeah, it's even though like the different, the scoring differential excluding uh, game three has not been great for Golden State. I think they've just looked, they've looked better than Memphis has. And Memphis has looked significantly better than they should because Ja is giving you 38 a night. I mean, this dude had 47 in game two, 38 in game three, or 34 in games one and three. There's no one who is stopping Ja Morant, which is kind of remarkable considering that his his whole offensive repertoire is it's lagging behind where he should be to take this team to the playoffs and that's not a that's not me throwing shade he's just not near his potential as a scorer or as a shot creator more specifically he's nowhere near what he can be as a shot creator he's he's still getting to the basket at a foolish rate uh, he's still creating most of his points in the paint, which there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But once he figures out how to, you know, play like, I don't want to say a more traditional point guard, but especially if you want to have longevity, you do have to evolve as a player. Like you can be a hyper explosive point guard all you want. You could be Russell Westbrook. You can be Derrick Rose, but Derrick Rose, um, JJ Redick was talking about this as well. I think it was JJ Redick. JJ Redick pointing out how Derrick Rose became much less reliant on his athleticism, especially because he had multiple knee injuries. But you look at guys like Kyrie, guys like Dame, guys like Chris Paul. These guys are pure scorers. They're not just attackers. They There's more to their game than just going downhill. And the fact that Ja is shooting 50% against this Warriors defense when they know that he's really only going to go one way is spectacular. He has, of course, also been buoyed by his very impressive three-point shooting. Uh, he's at 43%, and his three-point rate is pretty high as well. He's taken 33s. 30 of his 83 attempts have been from the perimeter. Um, I don't know what that is. I'm going to just quickly compare that to um, his regular season mark. It's about six percentage points higher. From tw- about 22 in the regular season to 27 in the postseason. So, you know, maybe this is where he turns over that leaf, if you will, and emerges as a legitimate shooter from the outside. But just look at I'm gonna I'm gonna go to not full screen just so you guys can just so you guys can take it take this in with me. You're getting 20 from Triple J, which is fine. 
nine and a half from Desmond Bain. Where's he been? Kyle Anderson, eight, seven and a half from Brandon Clark. I mean, Dylan Brooks has, even though Dylan Brooks got suspended, I don't know what's going on with this dude. Like, he has struggled so impressively throughout the playoffs. I, I just, I don't understand what happened. How is he down 12 points per game from last season? How is he down six from his regular season average? It's remarkable to me. Um, I, You know, I'm not going to go in on Dylan Brooks. I Really, it's just been difficult for him to find a rhythm. It really has been. He's just had the most difficult time because unlike Ja, he doesn't, his offense, there's no part that really sticks out. I mean, he's not particularly efficient. He's a decent shooter. He's a decent perimeter shooter, but he's nowhere near. He's nowhere near a proper complement to Ja, I don't think. Um, but yeah, it's just been, it's outside of Ja, it's been all bad for Memphis. But, you know, Golden State has had their own issues as well. Steph is giving you decent volume 28 I say decent I mean knowing what Steph can give you 28 is decent for him I guess uh 43% shooting again not the best but Steph I, I'm I don't know let me see uh okay so historically Steph does shoot worse from or Steph shoots worse in the postseason compared to the regular season it's not like a tremendous drop-off uh he drops by like four points no he drops to 51 in overall and to about 40 from three so again not the biggest drop in production but this is uncharacteristic of him and Jordan Poole has been the Warriors savior averaging 23 on 54 percent his emergence as the as really like the third splash brother or like the baby Splash Brother, I, I guess would be the more appropriate nickname, has jump-started Golden State's offense numerous times when they've gone flat. I mean, he's effectively playing the role that you thought Andrew Wiggins was going to play. I feel like they've shifted. When you acquired Wiggins, you thought that this would be your third shot creator, trailing behind Steph and Clay. But clearly the, traje the trajectories of these players have gone vastly differently and you know Wiggins can still create his own shots um but I at this rate Jordan Poole is definitely the more consistent option at least all around I mean I know, I know there are some games where Wiggins really gets locked in and is making threes from everywhere and doing all bunch of crazy shit and jumping over people but that hasn't been the case and I think that Memphis's defense to a degree has bothered Golden State but ultimately Memphis just does not have the talent to contend with this team I feel like now with that that's going to bring us to this video I got served this video on my YouTube recommended and it's two of the greatest it is just two of the greatest media personalities what the fuck that we've ever seen of course I'm being facetious it is Stephen A. Smith who as we know as more of the Entertainer type and JJ Redick. We're going to go ahead and get into this. I watched the Boston Celtics play Milwaukee last night. I'm still looking at Milwaukee. I'm looking at Embiid returning. I'm looking at Miami being Miami. 
if the Warriors play that way, you ain't winning the championship. And that's how I'm measuring them by since they are my pick, they're your pick. That's how I'm looking at it. That's the that's the litmus test that I'm measuring it upon. And so for me to watch them struggle the way that they struggled last night just to make a shot, I was not happy about it. <laughs> oh, God. What really sent me about this video was the fact that Stephen A. explicitly mentions Miami. Explicitly mentions the Miami Heat. And then begins talking about how if Golden State plays like how they played in Game 3 or in Game 4 against Memphis, they're not winning the championship, which totally does not make any sense at all because Miami has played worse over the their last two games than Golden State did in game three. Like that's not a that's not a comparison. If you're worried about Golden State because they only won by three against the Memphis Grizzlies without Ja Morant, who let's not forget that without Ja, their defense and I watched this video, so I'm offend I'm effectively regurgitating what JJ Redick is about to say. But you can't be concerned about Golden State but then also not be concerned about Miami, who has shot 20% from three in their last two games and only avoided getting blown out in game four because Jimmy Butler put up 40. Like, that doesn't work. You can't do that. <laughs> you, you can't just totally disregard everything else that's going on and then also literally forget about the fact that Golden State just beat Memphis by 30. And regardless, they're still up by three games in the series. I just felt that to be very, very odd. I think for me, I, I would look at it the other way. You still won a game when you played that way offensively? I, I've, I'm sure it's happened. I can't recall watching a game in which I thought to myself, I've never seen Klay Thompson and Steph Curry shoot like this on the same night collectively. And they were good looks for the most part, and they couldn't buy one. Mr. First, I'm with 15, 16 three-pointers as a team. They look buried. Bain's throwing in half-court shots. They're picking up loose ball rebounds and putting them in Kyle Anderson. And I'm saying to myself, it's Memphis's night. It's just their night. It's not going to happen tonight. This is going to get real interesting now going forward. And what do they do? They resort to the greatness of Steph Curry down the stretch. He gets hot. And I look at it like this. A playoff series is checking boxes getting to four. It's a race to four. It's really all that matters at the end of the day. The fact you could win a game when you played that poorly offensively. Oh God, Jordan Poole, a shell of what oh, he has shit. been to this part in the postseason. And you still figured out a way to win the game. And look, Memphis contributed to it. Their late game shot selection. I effectively agree with everything that Tim Legler is saying. Because I've had this approach numerous times watching numerous games. If you can win a game playing at, I wouldn't even say this was half of how well the Warriors could play. I know they put up 100 points, but just in terms of the ease of their victory, they had to be at like 30%, 33%. But in the playoffs, each team takes it game by game. You try to win game one, and then you try to win game two, so on and so forth. If you lose game two, you look to bounce back in game three, so on and so forth. And over the course of these playoffs, the playoffs are a long grind, even a series is a grind. The increased physicality, the increased degree of difficulty going against different opponents. Sometimes you're just going to 
you're just going to have an off night. And that's what happened to Golden State. They had an off night. And even still, they managed to beat Memphis. It was by three. I understand they didn't play that well. But you're not going to shoot the lights out every night. This isn't the Warriors of 2019 or 2018, whenever it was. Not the Warriors of 2018. This wasn't the Warriors of 2018 where you go 15-1 and one or whatever it was because you have KD, Steph, Clay, everyone's healthy, everyone's you know at the peak of their powers. That's not them. Like The Warriors, I still feel, are going to represent the Western Conference in the NBA Championship, but they're not as far ahead from the rest of their competition. And yes, even they are going to have off nights, which again, this is what... That is, that's what they had. They had an off night. There's really nothing you can do about it. Sometimes you just miss shots straight up. It's the same shit that happened to the Bucks in game four. Sometimes you just can't put the ball in the basket. I mean, we watched Miami do it two games in a row. Sometimes it's like you get unlucky bounces. Like you can only do so much as a basketball team. But still, when that's not working for them, Golden State can fall back on their defense. They held Memphis to 98 points. They've held, they've kept Memphis in check again outside of John Morant for pretty much the whole series. So, uh, listen, I know Stephen A is like freaking the fuck out. He's about to turn into a puddle, like someone zapped him or whatever. But there's no reason to worry, especially because, hey, buddy, they're up three games to one. In, their ball management at the end of the game was terrible. They showed a lack of poise. It allowed the gate to be open. But I would actually look, if I'm Steve Kerr, I wake up with such a sense of relief that we could play that poorly and win a really, really important game. I'm still cool with Golden State. They did score 100. If I'm Steve Kerr, I'm waking up and thinking, damn, it really sucks that I still got COVID. <laughs> Obviously, I hope he's okay. But if he lost taste and smell, I know it's going to be a long couple of days for that man. 40 points mm -hmm. in the last game. So this isn't a trend every night. We're just struggling to get to 90. They just put up a 140 spot, and they played horrible last night. Yeah, and they didn't have Kerr, obviously, coaching. All right, we knew with John ja Moran out that the Grizzlies' defense was going to be better. That was the case all regular season in the 25 games that he missed. I think what maybe is a little concerning is it seems like, at least in this series specifically, the Warriors' offense is toggling between the Warriors offense that we have all come to know and love with the ball movement and player movement, and then there's just these, these quick possessions where there's no real ball movement or player movement, and they're taking tough contested shots. And some of that, of course, is the Grizzlies' defense. But when we talk about a championship and we look forward, you mentioned those teams, we look forward to potentially the Suns in the next round or a Boston Celtics in the finals, a Milwaukee Bucks, Philly, like, they're going to have a lot of trouble scoring against those defenses. I think about the Celtics a lot. That matchup for the Warriors, I don't like that matchup for the Warriors. I agree with you. I mean, it's particularly based on what I saw last night. Listen, the bottom line is this. We know what we know what stirs the cup is Steph Curry. And then we get to Steph Curry combined with <clears throat> Jordan Poole and Klay Thompson. And when you see them looking normal, and then you think about Boston's defense and what they can do, all of a sudden, you start looking at the Boston Celtics, particularly with the command. I said coming in yesterday when I was with JJ Tim, I said, "Look, Boston's got to win tomorrow to last night going into last." I night. think because I too think that Boston is a frightening matchup for 
Golden State. Like, I think Boston is... Boston and Milwaukee, either of them can make it out. And obviously, one of them is going to make it out. But one of those teams is going to the NBA Finals to represent the Eastern Conference. I do think, and again, there's no way to quantify this. This is unquantifiable. I think that Memphis... Memphis is a physical defense. But I... I think they're a different type of physical defense than Milwaukee or Boston is. And it's kind of like Memphis is a physical defense because they have a bunch of football guys trying to play basketball. And if you've ever played basketball with a football guy, you know what that means. They're just like crazy physical. They're not the most refined on the de- on defense. And, and a lot of that is attributed to they're youth, they're inexperienced, they're they're just playing free. They're playing freely because they don't know anything else. Whereas Boston and Milwaukee are legit NBA defenses. Teams that can throw multiple coverage coverages at you. They can they can, they have the ability, they have the personnel and the intelligence from both the players and the coaching staff to run unique defenses. To try to throw you off. Where Memphis is just playing on athleticism and playing on energy. And I think that's a different type of that's a different type of thing to play against in the playoffs because that typically doesn't happen. Like you never have these kinds of teams be as free while also being as talented as Memphis is. That could just be total bullshit. Um I could just be making that up. But that's that's my inference. Memphis just plays a different type of physical defense that teams aren't used to seeing in the postseason. And I mean, you know, regardless of what happened to Gary Payton and just how like over the top this series has been in terms of, you know, the officiating, that's bound to happen in the playoffs. Just tensions are high, emotions are high. I I think that while Golden State will still have issues with Milwaukee and Boston, much like Milwaukee and Boston will have issues with Golden State, I think it's it'll be a lot easier to game plan around that because Memphis is just so unpredictable on defense. I mean, you literally have Dylan Brooks, who is about as athleticism as who has about as much as athleticism as a baby giraffe, trying to contest. Gary Payton's shot at the rim from six feet away. No one knows how to game plan for that. It's just, it doesn't happen. It, it doesn't happen. What business does Dylan Brooks have attack, attacking? I hate to use the word attacking, but that's kind of what he did. What business does Dylan Brooks have attacking Gary Payton on that layup? You know you're not getting up there. Just why put yourself in that position? I said, they don't win this series is over because you're not beating Giannis three straight games. It's not happening. It's just not. There's no way. They come back. They down double digits. They come right back in the same damn quarter. This is what they do. We know they can clamp down. And so when I'm looking at Golden State struggling the way that they're struggling, I'm saying to myself, look, you can't let that happen because you will not win the championship if that happens. Yeah, I think that Golden State is good enough to get by anybody in the West, including Phoenix, including Dallas. That is what my core belief has been all season long, and I believe they're going to win the chip. But then I'm watching Boston, and I'm watching their defense elevate the way that it has. And I know that Milwaukee doesn't have Middleton and stuff like that, but when you look at Boston, and then you start measuring what it's going to require in order for you to knock them off if you're a team like the Golden State Warriors. You can't play like you played last night.
problem Just I have. Well, here, here's the thing, though. Think about what we're all saying. We're talking about Boston matching up with Golden State. We're talking about Milwaukee matching up with Golden State. Well, you know what that would have meant? That would have meant Golden State just beat the Suns. How different are you going to feel? Assuming, look, I don't want to dismiss Dallas. That's a 2-2 series. I'm not dismissing any of them. Right, so, so I, I want to be clear. That's what I expect to happen. I expect Phoenix and Golden State to play for a right to go to the NBA Finals. If we are getting that matchup, but who do you expect that means to win, Tim, State get to it? operated in a way to beat the Phoenix Suns, the best team in the NBA this season. So my, my point is, two weeks from now, if that's the matchup we get in the finals, maybe you feel a little differently about Golden State and what they must have had to do yeah. in that series. Yeah. All right. I get it. Okay, so with that, we're going to move on to what the title of <laughs> what the title of this stream is and probably what the title of the podcast is going to be as well. We're only 61 minutes into the show and I'm just now getting to Nikola Jokic winning the NBA MVP for the second consecutive season. This of course has yet to be announced officially. However, it is courtesy of a report from ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski, which of course is essentially like Jesus Christ coming down from heaven and delivering you a piece of news. Uh, this article reads, Denver Nuggets center Nikola Jokic has been voted the NBA's MVP for a second straight season. According to Woj, a formal announcement is expected this week. Jokic's raw stats were even better than last as he averaged 27.1 points, 13.8 rebounds, and 7.9 assists, good for eighth in the league. He also became the first player in NBA history with 2,000 points, 1,000 rebounds, and 500 assists in a season. Uh, of course, doing all of this without Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., yada yada. Um, so this was, of course, as every, well, not every, but as some, as some MVP, um, debates can go, this was so fucking fierce. It was, oh God, I think it was the fiercest in recent memory because for some reason, Jokic is such a polarizing figure in the NBA which is odd considering the fact that he is like very objectively one of the best players in the NBA. I mean, he passes the eye test. He has the numbers, both the counting stats and the analytics. The only thing he doesn't have is he doesn't have the look like he doesn't look like an MVP. I mean, you put him, Giannis and Embiid next to each other. You're either picking Giannis or Embiid to be the MVP just based off of how they look. I mean, these guys are fucking physical freaks. I mean, Giannis literally looks like he was chiseled out of marble, while Nikola Jokic looks like he still drinks a gallon of soda a day, which I don't which he doesn't do anymore. And he has, you know, slim downs since coming into the NBA. But this was such a fierce debate, and I'm happy it's announced. I can't wait for this to be over because goddamn, it is so fucking annoying watching people piss shit and fart all over themselves because their pick because they picked someone to win the award and they didn't and then they act like Nikola Jokic is an undeserving candidate like if you if if you are legitimately upset that your pick for MVP did not win MVP I need you to go outside you need to do one of two things you need to lay down on your front lawn or you need to hop in your car, go to a park, and walk a walk around the perimeter of a lake. You need to go outside. You need to put the phone down. It's not that deep. Just, just shut up. It's fine. 
It's fine. You can simultaneously disagree with Nikola Jokic winning MVP over Embiid or over Giannis. But you cannot sit here and act like this man does not does not deserve to be the MVP because the fact of the matter is that he does. He is a deserving candidate. Giannis was deserving as well, as was Joel Embiid. I didn't pick Joel Embiid to... Um, how do I do this? I didn't pick Joel Embiid to win, okay? But I did obviously pick... Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to edit a table on basketball reference. I'm sorry. Hold on. I was on the Jokic bandwagon, but and I did I talked about this in my video when I did uh my award predictions. I was not going to be surprised if Embiid or even Giannis if they won the MVP because all of these guys were remarkable this season the fact that we are in an era of positionless basketball that is mostly dominated by guards guards and wings the fact that we had three bigs in the mvp race is remarkable it it's insane it's absolutely insane not only that these guys are historically great all of them i would like i know that we don't want to we shouldn't be talking about hall of famers but all of these these three guys are all going to wind up in the Hall of Fame. I mean, Giannis is a lock. He could retire after this season. He'd be in the Hall of Fame. Embiid has the trajectory. Jokic has the trajectory. On top of them being from three different countries and having also the talent, they also have, like, they, they, they're, they're winning these awards on merit. And I picked Jokic, obviously. But what did it for me was... Yes, the numbers, and we're going to go ahead and we're going to actually dive into these right now. So, on a per-game basis, all of these guys were relatively close to one another. Jokic was the third lowest scorer, as you guys can see, at 27, but did lead in rebounds, did also lead in assists. Uh, also, not quite the force on defense, and we're going to get to that in a little bit, but was also, amazingly enough, the most efficient player on this list. I mean, he shot 58% from the field while shooting 34% from three. I mean, inside the inside the paint, inside the three-point line, Jokic is a bucket, bro. Just straight up. And if we normalize this to per 100 possessions, it effectively stays the same. I mean, all of these guys played on similarly paced teams. They all played similar minutes. Um, but where we get really wacky, and I know there are going to be some people who don't like this, where we get really wacky is with the advanced metrics. I think one of the reasons that Jokic has become so polarizing is because he is an analytics darling. And folks who love analytics love Nikola Jokic. But I don't think people who do the eye test bullshit, like, first of all, I want to I want to say this. The divide between eye tests and analytics is fucking stupid. You should be enough of an adult enough to understand the necessity of seeing basketball, but then also recognizing that there are numbers that can enhance your argument. Like you're not a weirdo for being in to analytics. You're a weirdo for being into analytics only or eye test only. Like as 
as a sports watcher, it doesn't it doesn't make sense for me to do that because if you're if you were playing basketball like professionally, I'm not talking about at the rec. Like I'm not fucking calculating my box plus minus at LA Fitness. That's stupid. But if you're playing at the professional level and you want to become the best player possible, you would work with the analytics team to see what holes are in your game and you know build on that. Like very much like if you know you have a weak right hand you know, to work on your right hand. It applies the same way to analytics. Like, I don't think that you can build an argument for a player solely on analytics or solely on the eye test because there are a lot of guys who pass the eye test simply because they accumulate raw counting stats. But in a vacuum, counting stats are cool, but nothing in sports happens in a vacuum. You have to apply context to every situation. So there needs to be a balance. And some guys get really wacky. I know there are certain people on NBA Twitter who are like, oh, if you take these very specific counting stats from Nikola Jokic's first five years and you mix them all together and you then mold them into a dildo, he's the greatest player of all time. It's like, no, that's that's not how that works. There is certainly more context to that conversation. I mean, yeah, obviously. All of the all-time greats like LeBron, Kareem, Magic, Michael, obviously... They all have great analytics, but like you can use those in conjunction with all of the other stats and all the accomplishments and you know their long-lasting impact on the game. So in terms of analytics, Jokic ranks first in PER, win shares preferred per 48 minutes, win shares overall, box plus minus, and VORP. Joel Embiid is actually the worst of these three, not by much. Though. So now the issue with this, and this is what this is what kind of confuses me about people's reliance on analytics sometimes. I just got done shitting on eye test people, now I have to shit on analytics people. There is once that there is one metric that I do not like at all, and it is defensive box plus minus. Because you are absolutely insane if you look at Nikola Jokic. And tell me that he's a better defender than Giannis Antetokounmpo. That is what defensive box plus minus is effectively saying. The definition, a box score estimate of the defensive points per 100 possessions a player contributed above a league average player translated to an average team. These numbers are all relative to the league average. There is no fucking planet that exists in our galaxy where Joel Embiid and Giannis and Tedekumpo are worse defenders than Nikola Jokic. It simply does not exist. It's not a real thing. And of course, I'm being very nitpicky here, and I think everyone knows the flawed nature of so many defensive metrics because it's so difficult to it's so difficult to quantify NBA defense because there are so many moving pieces and each of the five guys impacts each other. Oh my god, what the fuck? So, what really did it for me in this argument, and as I explained in my awards video, was not the numbers, because all of these guys are, are comparable to one another. What is this? Oh my god, field goals added? This is a new stat, by the way. Um, Basketball Reference recently started doing like um, shooting numbers relative to the league which I think is kind of cool and there's this one stat field goal points added by field goal shooting 
the number of extra points added by field goal attempts made above league average. Jokic is at 231. Uh, that's fucking insane. And I think that it only further illustrates the argument that I was trying to make, and that being what Jokic did on this Nuggets team, effectively by himself, is remarkable. And I know that folks will try to not necessarily downplay it, but they will they'll say that Joel Embiid had to deal with similar things, you know, with all the BS that went with Ben Simmons and, you know, this, that, whatever. But that's not really true because there is no player on the Nuggets who is better than Tobias Harris, let alone Tyrese Maxey. Like, you can't say, you can't talk about how great Tyrese Maxey is because he is. Do not get it twisted. Tyrese, Tyrese Maxey is a fucking demon. But then all of a sudden turn around and be like, oh, but Embiid has no help. Maxey averaged 17 and a half points this year, eclipsing 30 a handful of times, right? Um, had six, th- five 30 point games. Um, I want to just compare this to who's on the Nuggets. I can't wait to get fucking shit on by the numbers here. Oh, just kidding. Tyrese Maxey outscored every other player on the Nuggets, not named Nikola Jokic. If Tyrese Maxey were on the Nuggets, he'd be a 22 points per game guy. I'm not going to play the game where it's like, oh, if you swap this guy around, it's going to be... No. The The point remains that the Nuggets overall were a worse team than Philly. And Nikola Jokic dragged this worst team to nearly the same record as Philadelphia. Granted, the Western Conference was relatively weak this year, at least compared to the East. I mean, the Eastern Conference, I don't know what the fuck happened, but God, it was a it was a gauntlet that you had to run to make it to the playoffs. But you can't you can't ignore the fact that Philadelphia was better than Denver this year. And even still, Denver was comparable in terms of record, despite on paper having a worse team. And that was all because of Nikola Jokic. That's my argument. Now, again, I need to make this abundantly clear. I'm not upset that Joel Embiid was like considered for the award. I'm not going to be upset when it comes out that Jokic won by like two points or whatever. And that, you know, Embiid almost did, in fact, take the award. No, none of that bothers me because who fucking cares? Cool. Nikola Jokic won the MVP. If anything, I shouldn't care because nobody on the Nets was considered for the MVP. Although if Kevin Durant never got hurt, he probably would have won it. But also the depth of this class was insane. There was Giannis. There was Embiid. There was Jokic. Those are just the finalists. You had Jason Tatum, who you could have made a case for. You had Luka Doncic you could have made a case for. You have Devin Booker and John Moran, both of whom could have been finalists if they didn't get hurt towards the end of the year. Well, Devin Booker, I don't think was hurt. He was just uh, taking games off because of load management, whatever. But if you're like down bad over this as a Sixers fan or as a Bucks fan, you need, you need indeed.com straight up. Um, What do we got now? Okay, so this was the fucking most disgraceful thing that happened the other day. It was game four of Dallas Phoenix. 
when people started harassing members of Chris Paul's family, which of course is absolutely fucking disgusting, ridiculous behavior from the Mavericks fans. Um, again, I'm not trying to, you know, equate all Mavericks fans being scumbags, but these two people most certainly are. And uh, they should get fucked. They should be fined forever. You don't, you don't behave like this in a setting, in a in an athletic setting. You just don't, okay? Like, cr- you can cross the line like talking shit to a player, which again, I don't, I don't like. I support talking shit, but you have to know the line. But the audacity of someone. To approach Mrs. Paul and start harassing her is fucking psychotic. You need therapy. You need therapy. Um, Phoenix Suns coach Monty Williams said the NBA should consider having a special section in the stands reserved for the families of visiting teams in the wake of Chris Paul's family being harassed during Sunday's playoff game. In Dallas, the incident happened during Game 4 of the Western Conference semis between the Dallas Mavericks and Suns. Several family members of Paul were in attendance and were harassed and physically contacted by a fan in the crowd, sources told ESPN. Paul addressed the disturbing Mother's Day incident on social media following the Mavs win that tied the series at 2-2. Quote, want to find players for saying stuff to the fans, but the fans can put their hands on our families. Fuck that. 100%. Um, The NBA finds... Uh, players all the time for talk literally talking shit to fans like cursing at fans Kyrie got fined for you know flipping the bird to Celtics fans like I I get it you want the players to not you don't want the players to be perceived as disrespectful but they're all they're doing that out of retaliation and there, I don't see anything wrong with that. Like, if someone's busting your balls, like, talking shit about your family or, you know, talking shit about your kids, your spouse, your parents, whatever, like, that's gonna, that's crossing the line, man. You can't do that. You can't behave like a fucking Neanderthal at a sports game just because you paid to go there. Like, you still have to abide by, you know, basic rules of human decency. Just be respectful. Like, the players are human like how would you like it I mean it's not really comparable but like if you work a service job like you know you work at Starbucks or you work at a restaurant like you take exception when people say crazy shit to you and definitely and they definitely do as anyone who works in the service industry can attest like you still expect people to behave with you know a modicum of decency like you can make it past all of like the subtle blows or like all of the backhanded compliments that people say, but sometimes people are just, sometimes people are just fucking rude and people get like that at basketball games and basketball games are way more intimate than like a football game or even a baseball game. Just cause I mean, baseball games are definitely wacky as well, but everyone is like packed on top of each other. The arena small, like you are literally on the court with these guys. Uh, Paul's mother, Robin, as well as his wife, Jada, and their two children watched the game in seats close behind the son's bench at American Airlines Center. His mother had hands put on her, and his wife was pushed. A source familiar with the situation told ESPN, and Paul's kids were there to witness it. Paul's wife was also followed up the aisle when she left her seat, a separate source said. Quote, they felt very unsafe. 
Manny Williams said, it's a hard one because it's happening more and more. The situations are getting to a place now where I really feel like families who are there to support their loved ones need to be protected a bit more. Whether or not whether or not we have to give these people a section, a sweet something has to be done because we can't wait for it to get a level or two higher before we do what we need to do. Yesterday was unnecessary, 100%. Um, if, you, if you're just like putting your hands on someone, on someone, you can get fucked. Like, what are you doing putting... Well, fuck it. I'm not even going to use allegedly. I don't care. I don't think I don't think it matters. This isn't a legal case or anything. But if you're that fan and you're actually putting your hands on Mrs. Paul, whether it be his wife or his mother, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Do you have a job? Because no one who has no one who is employed dutifully would do something that fucking stupid. A hundred percent. You're there to enjoy the game. I know that as a Mavericks fan, you're probably elated, but your elation should not come at the expense of someone else's unhappiness. Like you can enjoy your elation in like you can enjoy your elation by yourself. Or even if you knew that they were related to Chris Paul. Like there are ways to interact with players, family members, with opposing fans, with decency like, oh you know it was a good game you know it sucked but i mean you know how often is dfs gonna shoot like that like you could say good game we'll see you in game five it's not that hard but like at, at what point do you think that it's it's okay to do that and then the the fucking best part about this is that oh god the mavericks statement was so fucking Oh God, it was so bad. There really is no other way to describe it. It was just fucking shitty. Quote, it was unacceptable and will not be tolerated. The Mavericks, along with the American Airlines Center, swiftly removed the fan from today's game. There was a the follow-up statement. Oh my God, pardon me. American Airlines Center. And the Dallas Mavericks security and executives have concluded the investigation into the incident involving the Paul family. Two unruly fans attempted to give unwanted hugs and have conversations with members of the Paul family on the public concourse of American Airlines Center. Stadium security responded immediately once notified by the family and the fans were swiftly ejected from the game. The fans involved in the incident will not be allowed to return to the arena until 2023. What the fuck is going on, man? Unwanted hugs? That's the best they could do? Unwanted hugs? It does not surprise me that this that the same organization who allegedly had two decades long of toxic workplace culture, of sexual harassment, this, that, whatever, is this egregious at... PR unwanted hugs I don't even have a joke I don't like have a witty punchline to describe the situation because it's it's just so mind-boggling like the 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 it's so tone deaf in this regard it's so fucking tone deaf to even mention it you didn't have to say anything. Well, I mean, you had to release a statement. Like, you could have said two unruly fans approached approached members of the Paul family on on the public concourse. You didn't have to 
fucking mention unwanted hugs because it just makes the organization and the fans look bad. I mean, anytime you're in contention with like Philly fans or Boston fans, you're not good. Like throwing throwing batteries at Santa, throwing up on little girls, this, that, whatever. Unwanted hugs? Dude, no fucking way. Suns forward Cam Johnson said a similar situation happened in Milwaukee last season during the finals when his girlfriend was hit in the back of the head and had beer spilled on her. Johnson said he didn't hear about, about the incident until after the game. I... I, I hear stuff like this, and I don't want to say that we need another malice at the palace. But if you're a fan and you're getting out of line, someone should be able to go to security. I mean, especially in the case of Cam Johnson's girlfriend, like where she would be visibly covered in beer. She should be able to point out the man who did this to her. That guy lets the equipment manager know. The equipment manager goes to the locker room and brings out two sets of gloves. So that way, two sets of boxing gloves. So that way Cam Johnson and the fan can duke it out. Because we know fans behave like this because they feel protected. And they feel protected because it's like, oh, well, I paid money to come here so I can do whatever the fuck I want. No. If you're Wylan, you should be able to get your ass beat by an NBA player or an NFL player or, or you know, an athlete. Of course, with all of the protective gear, you're not trying to hurt anybody. You're just trying to show that these situations have consequences. And I feel that, you know, getting beat up by an above average person in a boxing ring or in a boxing setting, again, with all of the necessary protections, is a good, uh, is a good way to, con is a good, um, a good consequence. You guys could spar, if you will. I'm doing my best to avoid, like, all of the colorful language that would get me fucking banned on these platforms. But... You know, just a little sparring. Like, you're going to spar Cam Johnson? Huh? Huh? Are people talking shit to uh, DeAndre Ayton's son? Think you want to spar DeAndre Ayton? Guy is seven feet tall, brother. You're getting, you're getting fucking clapped up. Um, quote, a large part of the responsibility has to be on the fans. They just can't act that way. There's no other way around it. You've got to address the problem with the real problem. It's that a fan can't go up to someone's mom and harass them. I mean, that's that's true. Um, I think Monty Williams brings up a good idea here is to just, you know, not have family members sit with regular fans. It's it's just bad. It's just bad, especially because I know that, again, sports fans, we deserve the least. We're some of the worst people on this planet. Sports fandom is a brain disease, and all every sports fan has brain disease. And it's compounded by... A majority of basketball fans being younger, spending more time on the internet, and of course, the amount of brain disease you have directly correlates to the amount of time that you spend on the internet. Um, with that, yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, I think Monty Williams, that's a great start is to, you know, because like this is a systemic problem. Like this is an issue with every sport. This is an issue with every sport. And you can have security, you can ban people, you can take away their privileges, but it's not working. So the really only way to stop it without compromising the experience of, you know, the fan, even though, let's let's be clear, it's only like less than 1% of fans who behave like this, but they still do, is 
you take the players' family members and you move them somewhere else, like Monty Williams suggests. I mean, although people talk shit to the players, like you can't get away with that. If you cross the line and the player points it out, you're getting you're getting fucking taken away immediately. You can't go onto the court. You can't do anything sussy because security will clap your ass cheeks. But the players' families aren't afforded that same. They're not afforded that same respect, and I think it's just um. I think it's kind of a disservice. And it, again, it's not something that you really think about because not a lot of cases are brought up, right? And it sucks that, you know, players' families are maybe conditioned to dealing with harassment, which they shouldn't be. Like, they should be a designated spot where all of the players' family members can hang out. I mean, throw, in, throw them in a suite... That, that'd be perfect because there's no interaction with the general with the general fan base because as I said sports fans we deserve the absolute least and with that I'm going to go ahead and close this one out as always thank you guys so much for coming to hang out with me today everything I'm associated with will be linked somewhere uh, below twitch um fuck I already fucked up the outro god damn it be sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube will be linked somewhere as well. Also, follow the Twitch channel. I go live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern. If you're listening to this in um, audio format, you go ahead, leave a like, leave a rating, leave a review on your preferred podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it. If you did not enjoy this episode, also tell a friend about it. All press is good press. And with that, I'll catch y'all in the next one.